Our scripture reading is from Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, and with all humility, gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Do you have a favorite book in the Bible? Perhaps there's a book that means a great deal to you because it played a crucial role in your initial coming to faith. Perhaps there's a book that's significant because it brought you great comfort when you were going through a very difficult time in your life. One of my favorite books is the book of Ephesians. One of the reasons I love the book of Ephesians is because it provides us with a wonderfully clear and concise statement of the major themes of Paul's theology. Indeed, one commentator described the book of Ephesians as the crown of Paul's writings. Ephesians also has a wonderful balance between beliefs and behavior, between doctrine and life, if you will. Ephesians consists of six chapters, and it divides very neatly into two halves. The first three chapters primarily deal with doctrine, what we are to believe. The last three chapters primarily deal with how we are to live, with Christian behavior, if you will. And the difference between these two halves of the book of Ephesians is illustrated in an interesting grammatical characteristic. The difference is this. In the first three chapters of Ephesians, there is only one verb in the imperative mood. There's only one command in the first three chapters. In the last three chapters of Ephesians, there are 40 imperatives, 40 commands giving us guidance as to how we are to live. So most of the second half of the book of Ephesians deals with Christian behavior. This morning, I want to direct your attention to the transition between those two sections of Ephesians and specifically to the beginning of part two, the beginning of the second half of Ephesians. Paul opens the second half of the letter with a very brief summary of how we're to respond to the God who has been described in chapters 1 to 3, how we're to live. What does God expect of us? What are our responsibilities as Christians? In the opening line of chapter 4, he urges his readers to live a life worthy of their calling. Live a life worthy of their calling. 
Now, that's a noble aspiration. If you are looking for a mission statement for your life, that would be a good mission statement to choose. I want to live a life that's worthy of my calling. It's an excellent summary of how we should respond to the grace of God in our lives. But the problem is, it's so general. It's so vague. It cries out for explanation or elaboration. How do I do that? What does a life that's worthy look like in practice? And that's really what the rest of chapters 4 to 6 set out to demonstrate for us. What Paul does in these remaining chapters of the book is unpack what a worthy life looks like. And the very first example he gives of how to live a worthy life is the passage that Tina read for us a few moments ago where he talks about being unified. Those who've experienced the grace of God in their lives are to be one, and that unity is to come to expression within the Christian community. So what we have in this section that was read for us is, first of all, an appeal for unity, a call, if you will, to be one. And then we have an affirmation of unity. We have a statement that we are one. We're called to be unified because we are unified. We are one body of Christ. So we begin by looking at the appeal for unity in verses 2 and 3. In the ESV, these verses read as follows. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This passage urges us, first of all, to live in humility, and then gentleness, and then patience. And then it goes on to say we should bear with one another in love and maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Paul begins by identifying three characteristics that need to be present if the church is to be unified. Humility and gentleness and patience. The characteristic of humility is especially prominent in Paul's letter to the Philippians. And in Philippians 2, Paul says this, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. We sometimes identify humility with having low self-esteem. The humble person is a person who doesn't think he's worth very much. But that's not the biblical concept of humility at all. 
it's clear from what Paul says here in Philippians that the humble person is the person who puts the needs of others before his own desires, who is more other-directed than self-directed, who's not caught up in selfish ambition, he says here. And this is a characteristic that is especially crucial if the church is to be unified, putting others first. Because as John Stott points out, pride lurks behind all discord. The enemy for unity in the church is pride. So Paul urges us to be humble. Someone has put it this way, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. It's not thinking less of yourself, that is having low self-esteem, but it's thinking of yourself less and thinking more of others. As a prof, I often encourage my students to be very careful to acknowledge their sources document when they quoted someone, who they were quoting. And I'd love to be able to document this particular source for you. Who first uttered these words? But I've actually seen this quotation attributed to C.S. Lewis, Rick Warren, and Tim Keller. So who originally said this? I don't know. The only thing I can assure you is, it wasn't me. Somebody else said that. In Philippians 2, Paul goes on, of course, to illustrate humility with the example of Jesus himself. Our Lord was the great model of humility. And his humility did not take the form of thinking less of himself, but rather of taking on himself the role of the servant and becoming obedient for the sake of others, even going to death for the sake of others. That's what humility looks like. So Paul urges humility. Secondly, he speaks of gentleness. And he brings these two words together in a single phrase. Humility and gentleness. We actually find that same combination in the teaching of Jesus as found in Matthew 11 verses 29 to 30 when Jesus gave this invitation take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light So when Paul urges us to be gentle and humble, he is simply asking us to be like Jesus. These are qualities that you see displayed in the life of our Lord himself. What is meant by gentleness? Well, this refers to the practice of treating people with consideration and with courtesy rather than being overly harsh with them, treating them with courtesy and consideration. Paul uses the same word in 2 Timothy 2.25 
when he's telling his colleague Timothy how he ought to respond to people in the congregation who were giving him grief. People that were being critical of him, who were not being cooperative with him, and who were just giving him a very difficult time. And concerning such people, Paul tells Timothy, opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. When you're confronted with people who criticize you, when you're confronted with people who seem to be undermining what you're trying to do, you're to respond not with harshness, not with bitterness, not with anger, but gently in hopes that that will bring the right response from them. Paul calls for responding with gentleness. So he calls for humility, he calls for gentleness, and then he calls for patience. And patience refers to that quality of being willing to accept the failings, the criticism, the attacks of other people without flying off the handle, without becoming angry with them, without seeking to hurt them for the hurt they've caused you, striking back at those who in some way have hurt you. The word that is used here is sometimes translated forbearance. And it's used of the quality of God when he holds back his anger to allow people the opportunity to repent. He is patient with them. He exhibits forbearance towards them. He doesn't punish them as he might, but he restrains that anger or that wrath. So here are three character qualities, if you will, that are important in seeking seeking unity. Humility, gentleness, and patience. Unity also requires tolerance and hard work. The mention of patience leads very naturally to the reference to bearing with one another in love and being eager to maintain unity. Bearing with one another suggests the idea of putting up with other people despite their weaknesses, their idiosyncrasies, their failings. And this is a rather important quality if we're to see unity in the congregation. It seems to me there's a kind of refreshing realism here. The reality is we won't always see eye to eye. Because we have different backgrounds, we have different personalities, we have different interests, we have different priorities, we won't always find it easy to get along with one another. And sometimes we simply have to put up with, we simply have to tolerate one another the differences between us. Now that may not sound very noble, and it may not sound very spiritual, but there are times when that simple act of tolerating one another requires a great measure of God's grace. We need God's help to do that. This idea of bearing with one another also appears in the letter to the Colossians. And there, interestingly enough, it is linked 
to the practice of forgiveness. In Colossians 3.13, we read, Bear with one another, the very same words that we find here in Ephesians, bear with one another and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Paul recognized that Christians are going to offend one another. Christians are going to say things, they're going to do things that hurt one another. And there's going to be a need to practice this grace of bearing with one another and even forgiving one another. When we've been offended, being prepared to practice forgiveness. We sometimes think rather idealistically that the church should be a place where everybody just gets along and there are no ripples on the, on the lake, if you will. There are no difficulties. But the reality is we don't always behave well towards one another. It's a simple reality that sometimes we hurt one another. And Paul had enough experience in the church to know that conflict was not unusual. This was something that happened quite frequently in the churches. So we must be prepared to forgive one another's faults and failings. So bear with one another. Tolerate one another. And then he says in verse 3, This also is going to require hard work. He says, be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Or as the NIV puts it, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Apparently, Paul did not think that unity was something that would just happen. It would just be automatic. He thought it was something that required intentionality. It required diligence. One had to work at it because there are many things that threaten the unity of the church. There are many things that will tear the church apart and one must be very deliberate to prevent them from being successful, from destroying the church. In Paul's context, one of the great causes of tension that he had to deal with was the tension between Jewish believers and Gentile believers. That was a major source of difficulty in the early church. They had very different backgrounds and very different traditions, religious traditions. And Paul had to make it very clear, but in Christ you are one. And that's one of the big emphases in the book of Ephesians. In chapter 2, he teaches that Christ has torn down the barrier between Jew and Gentile. The Jews and Gentiles have been brought together into one family. That's the reality. We are one body. And therefore, we're to live that way. We're to live out that reality of being one body in Christ. Jew and Gentile, those are irrelevant distinctions now. The key is, we're people of faith. We're people of Christ. So because of the work of Christ, Jews and Gentiles were equally members of the same family. Now that division between Jew and Gentile isn't a major source of tension in the church today. But there are lots of other potential causes of division. Because Christians 
exhibit a number of differences from one another, differences of ethnicity, of cultures, of personality. There are all kinds of differences between us that require that we treat one another with humility and with gentleness and with patience and that we put up with one another and that we work hard at maintaining the unity of the body of Christ. So in verses 2 and 3, Paul gives us a strong exhortation to be one, to work at Christian unity. In verses 4 to 6, he then turns to what God has done to make us one. And he turns to the reality that we are one body in Christ. In this beautiful statement of faith, for that's what it is. It's a confessional statement. It's a statement of what is true because of what God has done. He writes these words. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. What we have here is a powerful Christian confession of the unity of the church. And this constitutes a powerful reason for striving to be one, for working out in practice the reality, the theological reality that we are one. The reality is God has made a single church. He has one body comprising people of diverse cultures, diverse languages, diverse ages, diverse backgrounds, diverse abilities, diverse interests, but all one in Christ. And it's our responsibility to live that out. To manifest that reality that we are one in Christ. And Paul expresses this in a very powerful way. For one thing, in these couple of verses, he uses the word one seven times. He really makes this emphatic. He uses the word one seven times. But even more powerfully, he involves all three members of the Trinity in this creating of one church. He begins with the work of the Holy Spirit, then he turns to the work of the Son, and then finally he concludes with the work of God the Father. He begins by talking about the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, and says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. It's through one and the same spirit that all become members of the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body whether Jews or Gentiles, slaves or free. And we were all given the one spirit to drink. So if you're a Christ follower today, you're a Christ follower because of the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. It's the Holy Spirit's work that initiated you in your walk with Jesus, if you will. 
And what he has begun, he guarantees to bring to its completion. The Spirit is also connected with our hope. Back in Ephesians 1.14, Paul described the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. So the Spirit plays a significant role in bringing us to faith in the beginning, but he also guarantees that what was begun there will finally reach its culmination. It will come to the end of reconciliation. So the Spirit's involved in making the church one, but the Son is also involved. In verse 5 he says, there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And here, as is common in the New Testament, the word Lord does not refer to God the Father. It refers to Jesus. Jesus is the Lord that's being spoken of here. And all who are Christians are Christians because of their faith in him. Faith that comes to visible expression in baptism. One Lord, one faith one baptism. Now today, we might think that baptism is actually an issue that divides Christians more than unites them because Christians have different understandings about who should be baptized and how they should be baptized and their theological debates that center on this issue of baptism. But I think there are two things we have to bear in mind here. Number one, those differences came later than the time of Paul. The differences in practice that we see among churches today were not present in Paul's day. But secondly, and more importantly, despite those differences in practice, there is wide agreement among Christians of various denominations regarding the significance of baptism. There may be differences in practice, but in terms of what it means, there is unity. And that is that baptism symbolizes our union with Christ in his death and resurrection. That's not a Baptist distinctive. That's a universal Christian confession. That baptism symbolizes our unity with, with Christ in his death and resurrection. So we may not agree about the mode of baptism and some of these other things, but that does not take away from this connection between one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. So we have unity through the Spirit, unity through the Son, and then unity through the Father. The final element is one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And here Paul expresses the reality that unity is grounded in the fact that God is the father of all believers. That all believers are his children. He is our God and therefore fellow believers are our brothers and sisters. Whether young or old, black or white, rich or poor, we are all members of one family. God is not some kind of tribal deity 
who is the God of one particular ethnic group or the God of one particular geographical region. He is the Father of all who confess faith in Christ wherever they may be in the world. He is the God who rules all of his people regardless of nationality or social standing. The final analysis, all of the differences that exist between us pale into insignificance in comparison to what unites us, that we are the children of God. Amen? Amen. I'd like to conclude with a prayer, a prayer for the church, a prayer that may be familiar to some of you because it's a prayer found in the Anglican Book of Common Prayer. Rather appropriate, I think, that we should conclude with a prayer from a tradition other than our own. So please speak from your hearts to the Lord as I pray this prayer for us. Make these words your prayer personally. O God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, the Prince of Peace, give us grace seriously to lay to heart the great dangers we are in by our unhappy divisions. Take away all hatred and prejudice and whatever else may hinder us from godly union and concord. That as there is but one body and one spirit, one hope of our calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, so we may be of one heart and of one soul, united in one holy bond of truth and peace, of faith and charity. And may with one mind and one mouth glorify thee, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.